Well, we are pursuing what it means to love mercy, as I just prayed. I'm talking about our having the right heart by looking at the teachings of Jesus. In the fall, we looked at the example of Jesus. We're focusing on his teaching now, and we're using the Sermon on the Mount as a point of reference in Matthew 5 through 7 uh, to highlight uh, what I see as four principles that make up what we might say is loving mercy. Generosity, availability, intentionality, and hilarity, you see those up on the screen. And the first character trait in in loving mercy that I'm talking about is generosity. Last week we considered uh, the Beatitudes in uh, verses 3 through 12 of of chapter 5, and that these should bring about a change in our perspective that results in in generosity. See, we get stuck in the middle of these uh, beatitudes, the poor, the persecuted, the meek, the mourning, but there's a before and there's an after. The before is this word blessed, which means of highest good, the nature of what God wants that is best for us. And then after, he holds these promises that I call dangled promises, like he had before him as well. They really are good things if we'll only believe them just like a child. And just like Jesus did, who said, of whom it was said, let us fix our eyes on him, the author of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the cross or endured the cross and despising its shame. And and so he even too saw what was out there because he was from out there. He, was, he came from before. He's viewing this also from beyond. And he's promising hope and reward because he knows it's there. And when we understand that, we realize that these things that we may be going through de- de- described in these Beatitudes, not only things that we may be having to affront that are difficult or things that we're supposed to be aspiring to, they're not as much a, a problem as a pursuit. And, and they're not some kind of consolation. You realize that you're supposed to be passionate about the things that are not yet exhibited in your life that ought to be in these descriptions. And you're thanking Him for those things that are a part of your experience. So our first principle was this. When the present becomes temporary, when we realize there's something beyond, then the, these things that we face are tools, not treasures. Life's and things and thir- circumstances are things that God ends up using to accomplish what He wants in and through us, make us more generous, we end up giving out of what we have in hand. Now today, I want to talk about the future being now. Again, a little bit of that picture from before. And I offer a second principle. Let me explain the subtle difference in this one. The second principle is when the future becomes eternal, then mercy becomes a way of sharing what is to come. You see, I said before, when the present becomes temporary then things become tools, not treasures. What we have right here, we realize is a part of something that God has to to prepare us for and to bless us with for our future. But when the future becomes eternal, then mercy becomes a way of sharing what is to come. Generosity is giving out of what you have received. And here's the subtle difference that I'm making. Last week was about what you have in hand, materially or circumstantially. This week, I want you to consider, I want us to think about what we've received in a spiritual blessing. And I think Jesus shows us how this is lived out in a couple of ways here in the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, he shows us how this is lived out, this, this kind of seeing how, uh, 
how the future is, is really eternal and, and, and I am so much a part of that that I can... Sh- not, I'm so much a part of that future that's eternal. I can start sharing that, those same spiritual blessings that I've received now with others, right, where we are. I can do that personally. And this is how we're to be merciful or generous responsively. And then we can do it collectively. We're to be doing this proactively. So let me show you what I mean. First of all, personally. We're supposed to be responsive in a merciful, generous way. Verses 38 through 39 of chapter 5. There we read, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Okay. This right here, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is coming out of three passages in the Old Testament that say this. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. You can probably see those in your footnotes. Uh, What we're talking about here is um, uh, the law in the context of the Old Testament in court justice. This was called the uh, lex tylanus. All that means is that the law of retribution or retaliation. Actually, this is the oldest kind of law that we know exists. We can find it two millennia before uh, Christ in, uh, in the Code of Hammurabi. It's the basic thing. When somebody does something wrong to you, this is how you respond. And they were meant to be laws that controlled personal vengeance. You're supposed to respond in a way that is commensurate to what happened to you, is the general human idea. You know, if he slapped you, you slap him back. I'm not saying it's right. That's what we said as a law. Is They should be about the same. Even God decided in the Old Testament law to bring in this concept and say, um, here, officials of the nation, you are to follow and protect the public and punish offenders and deter crime by doing these things. They, they were to make this punishment, commencement to the crime, controlling personal vendetta. And as a matter of fact, that's what Jesus is speaking against. Personal vendetta, personal response. Notice that all of the pronouns in this particular uh, paragraph are singular. This is a personal discussion. Jesus was speaking to individuals about violence against themselves personally. Do not take violence into your own hands personally that's what he's saying now it's an interesting passage that um, is used in the whole discussion of pacifism whether we are supposed to be a part of retaliation at all and there are uh, very sincere believers that differ on these issues i don't have time to go into that now it's a discussion for another time but the point i'd like to bring out is the application here specifically why i happen to have a certain view that is not purely pacifist is that this is speaking to us as individuals, not as a collective society. We'll get to that in the next uh, things here. And this law was given for the collective understanding of what was supposed to happen among the Israelites. So there's just a technical little thing I don't want to spend a lot of time on. 
what I want you to see beyond this is the concept of the law. Jesus brings this up. You heard about this, this law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. What purpose does this law have? The law is not bad. It's not wrong. In its ultimate standard, it is and it will be fulfilled, but only by God. You can't do this. You probably know that. Have you ever tried to keep all the Ten Commandments? Only He can. The law works. It just doesn't work in the way you think it's supposed to work. Why would God give us a law that we can't keep? Oh, that's extremely important. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting, and that was his particular difficulty with the law. He struggled with that one, number 10. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. Without the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. We wouldn't know what our need is. We wouldn't experience how needy we actually are. Did you know that the law actually makes it worse? That's exactly what Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. You were already sinning, but then when you found out that you weren't supposed to sin in that way, it says, I, he says, I wanted to sin even more. We all know that, the forbidden fruit, right? You know, you can have everything but that. Why did they go after that? Because there's something about that Well, but it's not about the law, actually. It's about what is inside of us in that natural tendency to rebel against God. And the law brings that to the fore. God wants you to understand just exactly how desperate you are. Let's take retaliation for a little example. I'm sure no one here struggles with that. Do we? In the words of Kent Hughes, we all know that beneath our genteel veneers is an apparently inexhaustible capacity for cultured anger and vengeance. I love that phrase. Cultured anger and vengeance. The more we struggle with this, the better at it we get. And we culture it. And we, and, and we find these neat little ways that we'll get back, you know... When you're a kid, you just slap somebody back and then you find out you can't do that. So as you get a little more sophisticated, you find other ways to dig them in this. Right? And has anyone gotten to the end of that? Have you found it exhausted and you no longer want to strike back when you are struck? No. We all struggle with that. And yet we say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to have that attitude. I don't care what he did. I don't care what she did. I'm, I'm going to love him anyway. And you try and you try. And then all they do is one little thing. And see, I knew it. And, it. and only after we have tried over and over and over, we recognize we can't possibly be good enough. And so we're desperate and we throw ourselves on God's mercy. And we humbly repent knowing that we're helpless. And now do you know what you are? You're poor in spirit. When you realize you just can't do it, you've tried, that law just keeps showing you over and over again just how bad you really are, 
And you keep seeing it and you think you're doing it and then all of a sudden you just fall again and why do I always... When you get to the end, you go, oh, I just can't do this anymore. And you, you really, truly, sincerely, humbly plead for God's mercy. You become poor in spirit. And that, of course, is a blessing. Because the first beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you're poor in spirit, you've got nothing to lose. You've got nothing to hide. You've got nothing to prove. You know you've been laid bare. This is where we need to arrive. This is where God wants us. Revealed spiritual poverty. Being poor spiritually is an advantage. That's what that beatitude is all about. Now, that's a, I think that's a difficult concept. And honestly, I have been struggling all week with, with how I'm going to help you understand and believe and really want to be poor in spirit. Because I know what a struggle it is for myself. So, how can I help you see that? Here's an attempt. It's interesting that, that Jesus uses this concept of poverty to try and explain this, how else, we might, how else might we describe it? We might describe it as, as vulnerability, as total honesty, as genuineness before God, as, as no pretense, just a, a complete open life before God that recognizes how desperate it is and how grateful it is for receiving God's mercy. But he uses the term poor, poverty, to explain this. Why would that be? Why would he use that kind of a concept? I don't know, but I I read this and I thought it was helpful. This is a woman who's listing a list of things that are true about people who are poor materially. But listen to it through spiritual eyes and see if it doesn't speak to the kind of ways we're supposed to be in our relationship to God. This is Monica Helwig, and she says, that poor people are advantaged in these ways. The poor know they are in urgent need of redemption. Urgent need of redemption. Not just some. I mean, really, in need. The poor that know that... The poor know not only their dependence on God and powerful people, but also their interdependence on one another. Isn't that interesting? Might that speak to spiritual poverty? We recognize not only do we need God's mercy and His grace, but but we need other people's mercy and grace. The poor rest their security not on things, but on people. Spiritually, I don't try and be something that I can accomplish so that I'm better. On the contrary, I, I'm looking to others to help me be what I need to be. The poor have no exaggerated sense of importance, no exaggerated need of privacy. Isn't that interesting? No exaggerated need of privacy. 
The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries. Can you do that? The poor can wait because they've acquired a kind of dogged patience born of acknowledged dependence. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering and make it and wait. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news, not like a threat or a scolding. Isn't that interesting? See, if we're hanging on to the law too much and we think we can accomplish something in and of ourselves and then we hear the gospel that we're really sinners and we need to repent, we feel scolded. But when you've come to the end of yourself and you know you're desperate and you, you don't stand a chance and God comes to you and says, that's exactly where I want you. I'd like to forgive you. That's good news. Because you already know how bad you are. The poor can respond to the call of the gospel with a certain abandonment and uncomplicated totality because they have so little to love and are ready for anything. Just a little exercise that might might help us with this concept of, of what it is to be poor in spirit. Philip Yancey says, poor people find themselves in a posture that befits the grace of God. They know they need it and know it's meant to be received, not just considered. He says, I don't believe poor people are more virtuous than anyone else, though I have found them to be more compassionate, sometimes more generous. But he says, I don't believe they're more virtuous, but they're less likely to pretend to be virtuous. Human beings do not readily admit desperation, but when they do, the kingdom of heaven draws near. You see, we tend to make the law about about things and about order and about righteousness and about being right. You see, I I did it. I did what I was supposed to and they didn't. But when you're desperate, then you recognize you can't fulfill even a single part of the law. It's just showed you how weak you truly are. You see, then generosity as an expression of mercy from God becomes a thing about things being reordered. It's about His righteousness. It's about you not having to be right. When we truly understand His mercy towards us, then His grace is as freely received, is freely received as it's supposed to be. And we don't consider, well, you know, maybe I'll do that, maybe I won't. If you truly have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, didn't you find yourself there at a point in time where you just said, if it's not for God's loving grace, to forgive me through what his son did, I don't stand a chance. And when you get that, as I know many of you do, the appropriate response is to do the same thing towards others. We become generous people with mercy and grace because we know how much we have received personally. And there's something very futuristic about this, why I call this... The future's now. He's declared you righteous. This is how the Father sees you. This is not only true now, it will always be true. And you and all of your desperation find yourself forgiven. And God looks at you and goes, and I see you as my righteous child. That's a picture of the future. And when you know that personally, then that 
ought to lead to a life that is generous towards others in the same way you have received. Out of this unchangeable certainty becomes uh, a generous heart as we respond to others with the immense generosity we've received. And when you get this, you give as freely as you've received. You see, when the future becomes eternal, when you really see that that's also now, then mercy becomes a way of sharing what is to come. And you become generous because we know how much we fail personally. We know how much we've received personally. So how much are you willing to give to somebody else personally? Well, if that weren't enough, our Christian lives are to be more than just a personal response to God. Uh, and, I mean, a personal response to other people's offenses towards us. We're supposed to do this collectively. I do want you to see this. I'm not going to quit yet. Do me a favor. Go like that. Take a deep breath. Good. Now you're with me again. I want to show you the collective part. I don't have a video or a joke or anything else, so I just needed to kind of get you back on uh, uh, with me now, okay? I want you to see, it's not just the personal side of when somebody offends me, I recognize how much I've offended God, so I'll be generous and, and merciful and gracious towards them. There's also a collective sense of this, and, and I want you to see this, and we're supposed to do this as a group of believers. Now verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than any other? Do not, do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, right off the bat, he says... You know, you've heard it said. Well, what they heard uh, was a half-truth and an added conclusion, okay? They're jumping to conclusions with a half-truth. Right away, the half-truth. Uh, you've heard it said, uh, love your neighbor. What's the rest of that? As yourself. They dropped that. Now, I think that's critical right there. we got half the truth. And you say, well, what does that matter? Actually, it does matter a great deal. That doesn't mean we're supposed to be selfish. It brings in personal accountability. You care for yourself. You do. You always will. It's always that way. Even in the saddest ways that we see that people are not caring for themselves in this uh, very, very selfish society that we live in, like, uh, like eating disorders, uh, like cutting, like ultimately suicide, you know, you look at it and you say, oh, that person didn't care about themselves. Fact of the matter is, those are tremendously selfish expressions. Now, person, don't, don't misunderstand me. Those are complex issues. They're difficult issues. And the person needs help, not just look at them and say, well, how come you're being so selfish, right? Okay. But that's what those things are. They're selfish expressions. God knows that you He's built in us, in our DNA, this caring for ourselves. We must. It's, it's survival. It's necessary. It's when you get hungry, you eat. You know, it's just that simple. We get a little more eating than we get hungry, but that's all right. I'm going to help you with that in a few weeks. So there's this concept of, 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 of self-care. It raises the accountability bar. You're supposed to love others the way you care for yourself. You should care for yourself, and therefore you should care for other people in the same way. 
and it brings in my personal involvement into the situation. So that half-truth is a problem. And then secondly, they added a conclusion, you know. Well, then, uh, you know, love your enemies, I mean, uh, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Nobody ever wrote that. We invented that. It's not in the Old Testament. They just threw that one in there. It's wrong, okay? The Old Testament laws explicitly spoke of how foreigners uh, were to be cared for and strangers were to be welcomed. And as a matter of fact, it's on this concept that uh, Luke chapter 10 is all built. Remember when the guy came to Lord Jesus and said, you know, what do I got to do to get to eternal life, you know? And, well, I did all those things and, and trying to justify himself. And then the Lord says, you know, there was this guy and he was traveling down to Jericho, you know? And, uh, oh yeah, he was a Samaritan. And he got beat up and along came these other people and they wouldn't take care of him. But along came the Samaritan. I'm sorry, he was a Jew. And along comes the Samaritan and the Samaritan helps him out and he takes care. Who's your neighbor? You see, what he was saying was, your very enemy, because to him, the Samaritan was an enemy, is your neighbor. You're not supposed to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. You're supposed to love your neighbors and yours as yourself. And that person is much your neighbor as anybody else. And, as I kind of alluded to, in the previous paragraph, they're all uh, singular pronouns. Notice in this paragraph, they're all plural. Enemies, those, others, brothers, it's all plural. This is what we, as a collective body of believers, are supposed to be proactively towards those around us. We are supposed to be known as people who are merciful, who are generous towards others. Are we known? We are to be proactively, mercifully generous because we realize what we received. We do more than what others do. We choose to be godlike, And he lists that standard here. Uh, in fact, you know, even, even bad people do good things. You're supposed to go higher than that. Uh, he refers to this in, in the Beatitudes as being a peacemaker. They will be uh, called sons of God. Well, notice what the, the, the definition is right here in verse 45. He says, be, uh, be the sons of your Father and do these things just like He does. God loves all. You're no better. You can be merciful when you did not receive what they deserve when you deserved it too. You deserve what they deserve, and you didn't get it. So why don't you offer the same kind of grace towards them that I offered towards you? Where's the future in all of this? This is a taste of the future. Give them a taste of what's heaven, what heaven is like. Should people be experiencing things that come out of us, that are a part of us as a body of believers, that is a taste of what is to come? I say yes. There should be a, a kind of experience when people come in contact with people from Bethlehem Church that's heaven-like. Why do they do that? Why are they so... Why are they... That person's really, really nice. Why are they like that? And you get to say, because I want you to taste heaven the way I've tasted heaven. Returning to the heart of the matter, as I've talked about... Um, in my little illustration of what this means. Uh, I want generosity to be like the blood that's in your veins. I want it to be flowing all the time. You know, you, you need it every, in every part of your body. and it, That's why your little capillaries are so small. It wants to, it's got to go everywhere. 
That's what I want this generation, generosity to be, a continual presence passing uh, through all of what you do so that people could see it, so that it's a regular part of what you do personally as you respond to those around you and collectively as we proactively demonstrate who our Heavenly Father is. Now, the truth of, of, of the law in, in convicting us of sin, all those things are going to come. They're going to come. We're going to have the opportunity. The, the more we are lovingly caring for people, the more, greater opportunity we have to speak of our own failings and they identify with that and their need to repent of those things. We don't need to fear that generosity is just going to pave over all of the problems. On the contrary, it becomes this winsome, life-giving presence in people that they respond to. And then we have the opportunity to take it farther and speak of why we are so gracious towards people. Because God was that way with us. So let me apply these things to us a little bit or just ask you some questions in application. Personally, what have you got to hide? What do you got to lose? What have you got to prove? We all have those. We got things we don't, we don't really want to talk about. We don't want God to talk about. We all kind of know he knows, but let's just kind of not talk about it. You know, we, we got things we're hanging on to that we know we shouldn't be hanging on to. We got, we got some kind of background and history and baggage that causes us to try and prove something We gotta let him go. Because that's not what's given you any kind of presence before God, any kind of acceptability, any kind of winsomeness to him that he would say, Oh yeah, nice move. Okay, I'll take you. You're really talented, you're really good, you're really It was in your desperation he looked at you. Then he looked at you and said, Now you finally arrived. You get it. You desperately need me, and I would love to bless you. Can you say that personally? And if you've known that experience, then why wouldn't you be that way with others around you? Oh, I know the nat natural tendencies that still exist in our hearts and minds, but we're supposed to reflect on how much we've received and then respond in kind towards others in a generosity, in a mercy, in a willingness to care and love in ways that are unnatural. And then collectively, what do people say about us as a group of Christians? Are we as merciful and generous as a church, uh, as the Church of Jesus Christ should be? Is that what people say about us collectively? It ought to be. The future's now. Let's let people both see and taste what we have in store, just as richly as we have received. Started a couple weeks ago with a little. A video from Scotty Smith who talked about a disruptive mercy. It's interesting. If we really practice this, if we really sought after these things, it's disruptive. It turns everything upside down. The mercy of God is not passivity, he says. To love mercy is a glorious life of turning, turning everything upside down through the radical mercy of God that will not, that will not say no in the face of evil, but instead... Love anyway. May God strengthen us as we pursue mercy to give as freely as we have received. Let's pray.
Oh, this is a, perhaps, Lord, a difficult concept for us to even get our heads around, let alone practice. Thank you that even in our lack of understanding, you are merciful and gracious. You are generous towards us. So forgive us for all of our humanness. Help us to see truly how poor in spirit we must become. And then realize how much we've received. And allow that to, to just become a, a seedbed of marvelous generosity towards others, a mercy and a grace, both individually and, and corporately, that, that makes us look more like you. Help us to be truly sons of our Father as we pursue mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.